Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our time together. We thank you for the joy of being together and learning your word. And we pray, Heavenly Father, as we look at some errors in Catholicism, that you would help us to understand the truth better, that you'd help us to understand the gospel better, so that we may help those who are confused, and then we may persevere to that last day that you come for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, thanks, Bob. Well, everyone, um, we're going to be doing Proverbs normally, but remember, I wanted to always give you an assignment the week before, and we didn't get an opportunity to do that. So I will be giving you your Proverbs assignment at the end of the message today for next week. But remember, I mentioned in between our Proverbs messages, I will be doing apologetics regarding Catholicism. And uh, one of the books that I was intrigued by that I had read some time ago, this is probably five years ago, was a book by a man named James McCarthy. And what intrigued me about his book, his book was called The Gospel According to Rome. And he was an apologist uh, like you and I, an evangelical showing the errors of Catholicism. But he had a flow chart in it. And so I want to credit him. I didn't just copy it, by the way. I had to make up my own because he had a more elaborate one. But it was his idea. And let me explain the power of this flow chart. Oftentimes we know the problems with Catholicism and how they have salvation by works. But I was blown away when I actually saw it in a flow chart form. And that's what I wanted to share with you today is how involved Roman Catholicism really is in, as far as works is concerned regarding justification. And so I want to begin with showing you this flowchart. I'll pull up my pointer. And I want you to see that for the Roman Catholic, salvation begins not by faith alone in Christ alone, but rather it begins at baptism. And so, for example, if you have an infant that's baptized... They are regenerated, according to Rome. They are justified, according to Rome. They are infused with sanctifying grace, according to Rome. But what happens is if that baby later on does not cooperate with this grace, they're either going to commit venial or mortal sins. And if they commit a mortal sin, they become unjustified. And if they repent, yes, there's a chance that they can do penance, be rejustified, receive stored merit from the saints, and one day leave this life in a state of grace. Now, let's say they do cooperate with grace. Yes, they do after their baptism. That then leads to faith, which itself leads to works, which leads to other stored merit, including merit that is given to them by other saints, the meritorious works of the saints, and they can die in a state of grace. But do you see how convoluted this is? If in any time they sin, if it's a venial sin, they can simply do penance. But if it's a mortal sin, then they lose their salvation. And so salvation is always contingent upon something that they do. Now, let's begin. What I'm going to do is start with baptism. And I want to talk about how Roman Catholicism elevates baptism as the instrumental cause of justification. Again, what Roman Catholicism is teaching is that at baptism, three things happen for the individual. And again, this can happen to an infant. You have regeneration. What does regeneration mean? Well, regeneration is where a dead sinner is made alive. And they're claiming that that occurs even for an infant apart from faith 
by baptism, by the act done. In fact, they call it ex opere operato. That saying means by the act done. So they receive regeneration, they receive justification, and they receive an infusion of sanctifying grace, those three things. That's what they receive right at baptism. Now, when Roman Catholics are saying baptism is the instrumental cause of salvation, what do you and I say that the instrumental cause of justification is? It's by faith. So what I want to do is review the different types of causes that Aristotle had because they are, it's logic, and it's something that I think it's important to get our categories wrapped around uh, Aristotle's different causes. So let me bring this up. There's four different causes that Aristotle taught. The first type of cause, what's called the efficient cause. The efficient cause of something, whether it's an action or a belief, is always the designer. So God is like the great architect, and he is the efficient cause, therefore, of salvation. So what I like to do is think about a building that's being built, and the architect is the one who has the plan. Now, he's not working on the building, but he is the efficient cause of the entire project. That's God. He is the architect. Now, when we come to the instrumental cause... With our building analogy, think of that like the plumber. The plumber or the electrician or the carpenter, they're actually doing the work that creates the building. That's the instrumental cause. And again, what we are dividing over with Rome is the instrumental cause of justification. We say rightly from the scriptures, it's by faith alone, all by God's grace alone. They are saying it's through baptism by the work done. Now, let me give you a couple other causes because you'll see them mentioned in some theological writings. There's something called a formal cause. Now, the formal cause is the actual plan. But again, for us, it's very simple because the efficient cause, the planner, and the formal plan, or excuse me, the formal cause, which is the plan, they both come from God. Okay, so the efficient cause is the architect, that's God. The formal cause is the actual plan of salvation, that comes from God. But the instrumental cause is the means by which someone is saved. And again, in our quandary today, it's either baptism or it's by faith alone. There's one more cause that I'll give you, and that's the final cause. The final cause is the purpose for which the efficient causer, the planner, plans, and the formal cause is given, that is the plan. So the final cause is the purpose behind it all, which is to bring dead sinners to glory in God's case. So again, what we're really focusing on is what is the instrumental cause of justification. Now what I want you to do is, if you would, turn your Bibles to Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. This is a passage I'm probably sure many of you have memorized. But turn your Bibles to Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. I don't have it on the screen here. I think I have it memorized. Yes, uh, Nancy. Yeah, let me list them again, just so you have them in order. I was kind of jumbling them up a little bit. Yeah, you have efficient cause. That's the architect. You have the instrumental cause. That's the carpenter. You have the formal cause. 
that's the plan or the, the architectural plan that the architect gives. And then you have the final cause, which is the purpose, which would be the building of the building, right? Yeah, Bob. Now, are we saying that this scheme is the correct number of causes for us to consider and we're disagreeing about the instrumental? Is that what we're Yeah, what I'm trying to do is just put some framework to say what are we really arguing about with Roman Catholics. Okay. And so I'm trying to show that we're really arguing not about the originator of the plan, that God is the one who's planned salvation, that the purpose of it is ultimately salvation. What we're really arguing about specifically is what is it that justifies? What is the means of justification? So that's what I'm trying to do is to okay. focus our minds on that issue, right. which is the instrumental cause. And again, Roman Catholics are saying it's baptism. What we're saying is it's faith alone. But let's look. Yes, uh, Laverne. What I understand Oops, sorry, Laverne. We'll get you on tape. That way, anything that you say can and will be held against you. No, or, or for you. So, yeah. Here you go, ma'am. Thank you. Just as you were describing the clauses, yeah. it occurred to me the formal clause, just to keep in line with the Trinity, the Holy yeah. Spirit is, is involved there. Absolutely. So we would say the whole Trinitarian God. Absolutely. Absolutely. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would be the efficient cause with the, the, the plan, the formal cause as well. So absolutely. Amen. Yep. Oftentimes, we think that God the Father makes the plan, Jesus accomplishes the plan, and the Holy Spirit applies it to our life. But it's a little simple because they're all involved with every aspect of the plan. But yes, it's a Trinitarian affair, all of salvation. Absolutely. Um, sometimes Christ refers to him raising himself. No one can take his life from him, but he has the power to lay it down and raise it up. Sometimes it's depicted that he's raised by the Father. Sometimes it says that he's raised by the Spirit. Are any of them false? No, that's all true. It's a Trinitarian affair, the resurrection of Christ. And so it is with salvation as well. Absolutely. So very good point. Thank you for bringing that up. So what I want to do is read Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. Does somebody have that? I, um, I could cite it, but I don't know if I have it. Um, for by grace, let me just cite it. And if, if I'm off anywhere, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, right there, notice it says, for by grace you have been saved. Does everyone see the by in your text, for by grace you have been saved through faith? What's interesting is the through faith, that through the preposition is dia. And if you look at the grammatical sources that scholars put out today, they'll show you how the preposition functions in the sentence. The preposition dia is functioning as a preposition of means. So if you're a note-taker, right next to the through, through faith, the through is dia. That's a preposition of means or the instrument. So that's the instrument of salvation or justification. We've been saved by grace through faith. Does everyone see that? So that's a passage that would directly refute the Roman Catholic doctrine that justification is by baptism. Does everyone see that? Now, does anyone, could someone turn to Galatians 3, 2 and read that text for me? Galatians 3, 2. I'm going to show you another clear text that shows that faith, again, is the instrumental cause of our justification. I got it here. Oh, very good. Galatians 3, 2. 
Yes. This right. is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Okay. Does everyone see the buys there? Was it by works of the law or was it by hearing with faith? Well, the term by there here is a preposition ek. It's the source. So it's, again, it would really tie into this instrumental cause. What is the source or the instrumental cause of our justification and therefore receiving the Spirit? Is it any form of works? No, it's by faith. So again, very important, the prepositions there are showing us that it's not by one thing, but it's by another thing. Yeah, Brian. So when we talk about the means of grace, yeah. uh, are those things that, uh, so when you study the Bible, take communion, fellowship, all of these things, is uh, that, I hate to use this term, but opens the door uh, for grace. So how do you, so yeah. from what you're saying and then the means of grace, how do you jive those two? Yeah, exactly. Good question. So when you have a regenerate believer, what we're claiming is that the means of grace are the tools, the instrumental things that God uses in order to sanctify his people. So in other words, how do we find out about the promises of God as we're being discipled? It doesn't happen mystically. It doesn't happen in dreams. It comes by the scriptures. Okay, so that's why the four things we see, for example, in Acts 2.42, they're all ultimately about the promises, except prayer. Prayer is where God helps us real time. We can approach the throne of grace and find help in our time of need, as it says in Hebrews 4. So what we're saying is that the way God sanctifies his people is not that we go from a system of faith and all of a sudden we leave that, we go to a system of works, but rather we as Christians are still focused on the promises of God. And the way God keeps those promises in front of our minds, the tools that he uses are the Lord's Supper. Do this in remembrance of me. What are we remembering? Remembering what Christ did and what he's going to do. As often as you eat the cup or eat the bread and you drink the cup, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Right? So that's remembering. Um, when we're reading the scriptures... We're encouraged by the scriptures, not just about what Christ has done and informed and in learning, but we're also encouraged by what he will do in learning and being informed as we grow in the knowledge. And so these are the tools that God uses. And so one thing that I really appreciate about Bob years ago when I was brand new to the church was that he always put the means of grace in front of people. And the whole church did. And when I was blown away, I came from a seminary that didn't believe that you could know truth. Well, here all of a sudden I'm inundated with the truth all the time. And to say, yes, we can know. And so what Bob did for me intellectually is when we were at Bethel and Northwestern and fighting out the heresy, is he kicked their intellectual door down and he said, regarding post-modernity, I can beat you in your epistemology and therefore we're going to get beyond that and we're just going to teach the truth. And that's why, like, I remember Tony Jones, we had invited him to debate, and they no longer would with Bob anymore because the, the jig was up. They knew that he could refute them in their epistemology. And so the point is, when we can know the truth, the truth is revealed to us in the Lord's Supper. It's revealed to us in the Scriptures, the promises of God, what Christ has done, and what he will do. And that 
is the means of grace, the instrumental way in which God enables us to be sanctified. Yeah. Sometimes an, an analogy out of the yes. Old Testament is helpful. Yes, very good. I wrote an article on means of grace, and this doesn't, this applies just to this one person who came to get cured of leprosy. Oh, Naaman, yeah. Yeah, Naaman. And so he comes, the prophet comes. He wants to see the prophet and some great thing happen. <laughs> and he said, go wash in the Jordan seven times. And so he's mad and he was going to go back. Now, I may have this wrong, but no, that's right. you can look it up. I wrote about it. So he's going away and his servant said, well, if he told you to do some great thing, would you do that? Remember, what did he say? Well, we got better water where I came from. I'll just go back there. <laughs> now, washing in the Jordan seven times isn't a means of grace for everyone, right. but it illustrates that God uses his promise coming from authoritative prophets. Amen. And if we just believe that, it isn't that washing in the Jordan is magic, right? but that an authoritative prophet brought that word to someone who asked, Amen. and he believed it. And when he did it, he was cleansed of his leprosy, if That's I remember right. that right. Yeah. But that illustrates why means of grace are valid under the new covenant. That's right. Because they're attached they came from authoritative and errant prophets and apostles, the biblical ones, Christ and his apostles. Amen. And they are attached to promises. Yes. Okay. Do this in remembrance of me. Amen. So what's the promise? Well, they will, in the, in the eternal kingdom, eat and drink with the Lord yeah. face to face. So when we have the Lord's Supper, we're looking forward, not just back. Amen. It's not magic. It's believing the promises of God. Amen. And the word of God is inerrant, infallible, sufficient. And so he commanded his disciples to teach these things. Amen. And if we stick with that and believe it, that's how God changes us. Amen. So Sad. thank you for pointing that out, that we really need to just believe the promises of God. Amen. Um, I'm sorry, I know we had another comment or question. Um, oh, yeah, was it, was it Norm? Hey, Norm, just, no, 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 that's all right. Um, as you, just right before you go, Norm, I was going to just mention some years ago when we were at the Fick Auditorium, Bob did a Sunday school that I thought was really important, and we still have this online. I highly recommend that everyone see this series that Bob did in Sunday school where he laid out regarding the means of grace, there are three things that are true of the means of grace. One, it's, there's a command given by God. Second, there's a promise given by God. And the third thing is it's accessible to every Christian. Accessible. Exactly. Accessible to every Christian. So you don't have to be some superhuman to um, have access. Now, just real quick, think about what's happening, for example, at Northwestern College. Some of you may have heard that they're teaching enneagrams. Now, enneagrams are these, I, I don't even know how to describe them, but they're basically, a, yeah, it's a form of divination really is what it is, but there's these diagrams that are designed to bring people back to their pristine self. Well, just ask a simple question. If you don't know what a neogram is, just ask, did God ever command that you do an enneagram? No. Did Jesus Christ command that under the new covenant? Did he give a promise that if you do an enneagram, you're going to be growing in grace and the knowledge of the Lord? No, he didn't. So here's the point. Who's the Lord of the church? Is it Jesus or is it Northwestern? Well, it's Jesus. Think about in the Old Testament, Nadab and Abihu. Do you remember they went, they were Aaron's sons? 
And they said, we'll go before the Lord and we'll just offer any fire we want. It wasn't commanded by God. It wasn't ordained by God. But we're going to offer it and he's going to have to just take it. Well, God didn't just take it. They dropped dead. It It didn't work so well. And in some sense, we say, well, that didn't happen with a neogram. So therefore, maybe it's not so bad. No, under the new covenant, God doesn't always lash out like that. But the point is, people, according to Romans 2.5, are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. So just because they're not wiped out like Nadab and Abihu were immediately, the implication of storing up wrath for the day of wrath is they're doing so accruing with, with interest. So that when they do breathe their last or Christ returns, the judgment that comes upon them as they neglect a greater covenant and a greater lawgiver Christ than Moses ever was, is going to be far worse. So Nadab and Abihu should cause all of us to say, no, I want to do what the Lord has ordained. So I'm sorry, with that long uh, talk there, go ahead, Norm. Um, uh, it's just a, a little question about Ephesians 2.5, which we were in, where it says, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. And then in brackets it says, by grace you've been saved. And I see all the translations pretty much separate that phrase, by grace you've been saved. Um, why, why is that separated like that? Is that the best way to emphasize the Greek meaning? Or I mean, Yeah, you know, either, I'm sorry, I don't have my English version in front of me right now, but either the brackets can be, if they're, um, are they square brackets or are they more parentheses? Round. Round, Round okay, bracket. good. Well, that, that's a parenthetical then by the author. So that's in the Greek text. Okay. And so it's a way that Paul, it's the way the English version is showing you that Paul is giving you a parenthetical statement. But by the way, he's saying, this is all by grace. Okay. Okay, does that make sense? Yeah. Um, You see another one, I'm thinking of Revelation 16, where the bad news of the battle of Armageddon is given. Then there's a parenthetical that those who hold fast, I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but those who hold fast and endure will be saved at the end. I, okay. I'm, again, paraphrasing horribly, but it's a parenthetical statement. Yeah, Bob. So what exactly is the gift of God? Is it grace? Is it faith? Or is it, yeah. what is it? That's yeah, exactly. Very good. Question. So in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, notice when it says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The big question is, what is the that referring to? Is the that referring back to the faith? Or is that referring back to the grace? But what's very interesting is normally when you have a demonstrative pronoun, you have three different genders in Greek. It'll be masculine, feminine, or neuter. Well, normally when you have a demonstrative pronoun, that, it'll refer back, it'll be, if, that, if that's neuter or masculine, it'll refer back to something else that's masculine. But what's interesting is all of the words in for by grace you've been saved through faith, those I believe, if I recall, are feminine, but that is a neuter pronoun. Here's the point. I'm not trying to nerd out too much. But the point is the neuter pronoun shows that it's the entirety that is from God. And that's designed by the Apostle Paul to show you it's not just the faith and it's not just the grace. It's both the faith and the grace that is all from God. It is completely a gift. And so that text in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 is so theologically rich I remember um, I did exegetical work with Dr. Ardell Kennedy, a beautiful man, Northwestern College, loves the truth. And he, we spent weeks on that one passage because it was so profound. So you're right. It's, um, 
the Ephesians 2.5, we are dead in our transgressions. We can't do anything about it. But he made us alive. And then parenthetically, Paul is making sure you know that you can't miss it, that it's by God's grace that that happened. That it wasn't something you did. It's something completely that he did. Absolutely, yeah. Great, great point. Yeah, uh, Levine. Oh, I think she was first. Oh, I'm sorry. We got somebody. Gotcha. I'm sorry. I miss sometimes. Oh, Laverne. Hey, we get Laverne, then Levon. Yeah. That's pretty good, yeah. Yay. Yeah, that's right. Well, this is confusing because I'm often called Levon. Oh, sure, sure. And Shirley, too. So, But uh, when you were just speaking, it just reminded me, each of us was given a measure of faith. So that just coincides with what you were saying. But Amen. A gift what, from God. I wanted to comment on... Um, I think what you were saying earlier, why sometimes the grace with, like with Nadab and Abihu, it yeah. was instant. But um, I think that what's happened with the children of Israel as well as us, sometimes we mistake the patience of God for the approval of God. And that is a yes. huge mistake. Very good. Very good. But also, um, and, I, and I thought about it with the Canaanite people. God was so patient with them. He gave them over 400 years to repent. And then ordered the destruction. So people say, oh, God is so mean in the Old Testament. No, that is the love of God 400 years before he. Amen. Laverne, I got to say it right, Laverne, you're exactly right. Um, You're right. When God doesn't necessarily judge right away, it's not a show of his approval. We often talk about there are exemplary judgments in the Old Testament scriptures that show that God will one day judge again. So do you remember in 2 Peter 3, you have the doubters, the mockers. They're saying, you know, since the beginning, everything's going on as it always has. Where is his coming? Well, Peter points out that God did intervene in history, one, through the creation, but also through the flood. And elsewhere, they bring up the judgments like on Sodom and Gomorrah. So those interventions show, like the flood, like Sodom and Gomorrah, that at some point God does judge, that his patience will end at some point for those who are not trusting in him. So exactly right. I love the way you put it. The, uh, the lack of, what did you say, isn't approval? His patience doesn't, patience doesn't mean approval. Good. That's a very good category to have. Levon. Um, I was just looking in Romans 10, yes. where Paul is concerned about the Jews, that in order to make them come to faith, they need preachers they need someone who's going to tell them the gospel yes it's not like we're not go out baptize them now they'll all believe he says um faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of god so you need to hear god's word and that is what regenerates your heart amen act absolutely romans ten seventeen. faith doesn't faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of christ that's what he's ordained that's his means that's his instrumental cause amen yes If I may uh, just respond to something Laverne said, Uh, it's profound that we can store up treasures in heaven or we can store up wrath in heaven. And to attach to what she was saying, the evil one will deceive people to the extent that they think that they're doing good when in actuality... They're storing up wrath, which goes to God's patience because the wrath will come. Amen. Well said. Absolutely. Yeah. 
it's one or the other. You're storing one or the other up. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm sorry, did we, we read Galatians 3 2 then? I wanted to show you another passage about the instrumental cause. And we talked about it was not by works of the law, but by hearing with faith. That was another passage. Now, one thing I want you to consider if baptism did justify, uh, Bob, you're going to be coming to this passage. Or oh, wait, 1 Corinthians 1 14 through 17, where are you now? Yeah, so you just hit that. That's what I thought. So you talked about this, this passage. You remember where, yeah, this is just recent. Do you remember when the Apostle Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you? Well, then he cites some that he did baptize, but he was saying that I didn't baptize many of you. Well, isn't it interesting if baptized did justify, doesn't it seem somewhat odd that Paul would be saying, I'm glad that I didn't have any of you justified by my baptizing you. Does, you see what I'm saying? It would seem incongruous that the Apostle Paul would say that. So let me just read that text. You don't have to turn to it, but 1 Corinthians 1, 14 through 17, Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. I'll just stop there. Okay. If baptism justifies, Paul would be saying, I'm glad that I didn't have any of you justified through my ministry. I'm glad that the wrath of God still abides upon you. I mean, you know, it's, it's almost shocking if baptism is what saves. So another point that we have to bring up, I think, when we're debating with Roman, Catholic, Roman Catholics and Catholicism, that how is it if baptism saves and justifies? Paul was glad that he didn't baptize hardly any of them. Yeah, Peter. I'm not trying to... St- steal your thunder, but you're coming to 1 Corinthians 1.17, where he flat out says, I did not come to baptize, but yes. to preach the gospel. Amen. And Peter, why would he, why would he, what's the significance of that? He didn't come to baptize. Well, if baptize justified a person, well, then that's troubling, isn't it? But he came to preach the gospel because by faith and trusting the gospel, people are justified. Absolutely. So we don't want to get the cart before the horse. And by the way, I'm not trying to denigrate baptism. Baptism is something that Christ ordains. It's commanded by God. But as we're going to talk about, it's a picture of salvation. It's not salvation itself. Salvation is by faith alone. Okay, now I want you to turn to a text that the Roman Catholics will often use to try to justify regeneration by baptism. Turn your Bibles to John 3, verses 3 through 8. John 3, verses 3 through 8. This is one of the primary texts that they use. I'll show you another one after this. But John chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. And this text that the Roman Catholics use to try to prove baptismal regeneration, again, ex opere operato, by the act done, will show you actually refutes their position. John 3, verse 3. Notice it says, Jesus, this is, remember, let me stop here, Nicodemus, comes to Jesus at night. Normally, night in the Gospel of John alludes symbolically to unbelief. Uh, Things that are unbelieving or people that are unbelieving often act at night. So Jesus answered, the question is, how do you enter the kingdom of God? Jesus answered Nicodemus and said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? So he's taking this literally. He doesn't understand the imagery. He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? 
Jesus answered, verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, does everyone see that phrase there in verse 5, born of water and spirit? That's what the Roman Catholics will latch on to and say that that is a clear reference to baptism. And so they'll say clearly Jesus is teaching baptismal regeneration by the water and the spirit. Now, I want you to stop there for just a moment, and I want you to turn your Bibles. Just keep your thumb there, if you will. But I want you to see this connection. Turn your Bibles back to the Old Testament to Ezekiel 36, 25. Because I want, again, Ezekiel 36, verse 25. Because I want you to see that what Jesus is referring to is not baptismal regeneration, but a work of the Spirit who regenerates dead sinners, enabling them to believe. So Ezekiel 36, 25 is about regeneration by the Spirit, not the act of baptism. And so that's what Christ is referring to. He's alluding directly to Ezekiel 36, 25. Notice the great promise that God gave that would come one day from the Spirit. He says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. That's when God would pour out His Spirit. That's what He was going to do. And so He was going to remove the dirt from the people. He was going to cleanse them by pouring it out. So that's what Jesus is alluding to. He's not alluding to baptism. He's alluding to what God's Spirit would do for the people. Now, continuing on, notice verse 6 of John 3. Jesus continues. It says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Then He says in verse 7, Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, notice verse 8. Verse 8 is very significant. He says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So notice in verse 8, Jesus uses the analogy that as the wind blows, you can't control the wind, so is the work of the Spirit. Can anyone in here control the wind? As an airline pilot and a flight instructor, for years I've wanted to. <laughs> there are times where it's created much trouble in my life. But you can control the wind. Let me ask you this. Can you control baptism? You can't. I mean, the, baptism, you could set up a fount. And if baptism really did, by the work done, justify sinners, you could keep bringing person after person to the water, and by the act done, according to Roman Catholicism, they would be saved. Does that sound like what Jesus is describing? Because you can control the baptismal font, but you can't control what Jesus is referring to, the work of the Spirit. So the way one is regenerated is by the Spirit. It is not by baptism. Baptism symbolizes regeneration by the Spirit, but it does not accomplish regeneration by the Spirit. If it did, you and I can control that. Jesus is describing a sovereign, supernatural act by the third person, the Trinity, by which he takes dead sinners, and for the first time he enables them to believe the gospel. That's the process that Jesus is describing that has nothing to do with what a human being can do. Does everyone see that? And so John 3, 8 
is devastating to their cause. Yes, hold on, Levon, I gotta go to Laverne, and then we'll go back to Levon. <laughs> you guys gotta get your own talk show. This is really good. Yeah. <laughs> when you referred to Ezekiel, I thought perhaps you were gonna mention the passage about the dry bones, because God said to Ezekiel, can these bones live? Yes. And then you saw them come to life with the sinew and the skin, and then, and then the spirit breathed life into them. Amen, Laverne. Well said. That's another passage we could bring up. And then I think of uh, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, the same thing, that God would pour his spirit upon the people. And so all over the Old Testament, there was that promise that God would pour forth his spirit. You know, one of the passages you bring to my mind is, does everyone remember in Numbers, I think it's Numbers 11, where you have 70 elders that are assigned to help Moses? Mm -hmm. And they're prophesying, and they only do it on that one day. But Medad and Eldad, these guys didn't get the memo. They didn't end up making it to the tent of meeting. But they're prophesying in the midst of the camp. They're also part of the 70. But all of a sudden, Joshua, the son of Nun, he becomes concerned because he thinks Moses' authority is being challenged. And so Joshua is complaining, these two men, Medad, or Medad and Eldad, they're prophesying in the camp. And Moses says, are you concerned for my sake? And then he says, oh, that all of God's people would prophesy. And he, he foreshadows this time where God would pour out his spirit. You fast forward to the prophet Joel. About 500 years later, Joel prophesies that one day God would accomplish what Moses dreamt of. From Joel 2.28 through 32, he would send his spirit upon all mankind. At Pentecost, we see Joel 2.28 through 32 being alluded to. And so by the spirit, the work of the spirit people are brought to faith in Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. The Spirit regenerates sovereignly whom he wills. It's not the act of baptism. Oh, Thank, the example oh, you yes. just gave reminds me of in the New Testament yes. where there were men who were casting out demons in the name of Jesus, and some of the disciples were the same syndrome. They were kind of jealous about it because you're not with us. You're not part of our group. And Jesus yeah. said, if they're not against us, they're for us. Yes. Yeah. Yes, amen. Yeah, thanks, Laverne. Thanks so much. Uh, Levon. I'm just saying, like, John 3, where the wind blows, where we can't control it. Wow. Well, it is God who determines who the elect are. So you can't just start saying, <laughs> baptize a person, and that person's going to be saved. It is God who saves us and who determines who will be saved. Amen. Absolutely. That's exactly right. So it's a sovereign work of God that we can't control. The Roman Catholics in baptism are describing something that humans can control, so they can't be the same thing. Absolutely. Maybe I'm just dumb, but explain to me the difference, you know, when the baby is sprinkled with water. Yeah. And then our baptism, you're submerged in water. Explain the difference to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we believe at Gospel of Grace that immersion is the best picture of baptism. And the reason for it is what it's symbolizing. There's three things it symbolizes, the washing away of sins. You could probably do that through sprinkling. But one of the things it symbolizes is identity with Christ. And so think about the first people that were ever baptized, according to 1 Peter 3, was Noah and his family. Now, it's a metaphor but it's a type that's fulfilled by an anti-type. So Noah and his family are baptized, and it's through a deluge. And one of the images that's there, Jim, is that if they wanted to go back to the old world, they could not. 
In the same way, according to 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul says that Israel was baptized through the Red Sea. And one of the images there is they're baptized, they have a form of baptism through the Red Sea, is if they wanted to go back to Egypt, they could not. Why? Because the waters closed in again. And so one of the images that we see is when we are baptized, it symbolizes this death to the old world, this submersion, and this resurrection to the new world. That if you wanted to go back to the old world, you can. You're on the way to the promised land. There's no going back to Egypt. There's no going back to the world prior to the flood. It's that kind of imagery. Um, what, what's more, in the book of Acts, uh, do you remember there was some reference? I, I can't remember the exact passage. But I remember, I think it was Philip, he said, there's much water. What prevents me from being baptized? And what's interesting is every time you see someone baptized in Acts, they're coming up out of the water. Um, there's much water. Why do you need much water if all you're doing is sprinkling? Why is Jesus depicted as coming up out of the water if he was being sprinkled? So the only data that we have seems to suggest immersion as well. Now, again, if that was all we had, that's not a lot to go on. But still, the imagery in the New Testament would support this death to the old, submersion, and resurrection to the new. We see that in Romans 6. So that's the big difference. The sprinkling doesn't have the symbolic significance that the dunking does. Yep. First of all, the baby has no idea. Yes. That's the big issue. And that's really the, the fundamental issue is, do you do it so that people are regenerated? Or do you baptize those who have been regenerated? That's the fundamental issue. And what we're claiming is it's the latter. Yep. A good question. Yeah, Brian. Did somebody bring up Acts 1-1? I don't know if I missed that or not, where no. Jesus tells the uh, disciples, stay in Jerusalem. John baptized with water. You will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Great reference. Yes. So who did the baptizing? The Holy Spirit did. The Spirit is the one. So water symbolizes what the Spirit did. It's, it's not the other way around. Yeah, we can't get the cart before the horse. Yeah, Bob. It's unbelievable how God orchestrates things. Yeah. Uh, an online friend of mine has been doing research on holy water that, that the Catholics use. Yeah. And so he was sending me these emails, and I'm trying to get a sermon together, and we're looking at this. Right. It's all the same thing. Wow. And so what he found was if you couldn't get to the right place, you could make your own holy water oh. if you had the right <laughs> recipe. <laughs> and so then we were looking at that and emailing back and forth. Well, the point is, the issue isn't holy water. It's God making holy people. Amen. And Jesus said, he who believes on me out of his innermost being shall flow springs of living water. Amen. Amen. So the living water wasn't made by the tradition of man or by some formula or by a holy man saying something over it. Yeah. I'm no expert on where holy water comes from. <laughs> but I do know where holy people come from. Amen. Amen. And it's not Rome. Right. Amen. That's well said. Absolutely. The whole. So you don't have to boil it or something or... <laughs> okay. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, very good point. Yeah, it's not the water that's doing the work, it's God. 
Absolutely. So the water is just symbolic. Okay, let me show you another passage that Roman Catholics use to try to prove baptismal regeneration. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Peter 3.21. And by the way, I've debated this text with also some Lutherans who were confused by this. So um, that was, by the way, my background as a child. I was uh, brought up Lutheran. And, um, it, and again, it wasn't the Lutheran church's fault that I was a unregenerate. That was my own unbelief. But I became a believer a little bit later in life. Uh, but here's a passage that's used sometimes by Lutherans and oftentimes by Catholics. 1 Peter 3.21. And by the way, it's in this text that Peter had just alluded to the fact that Noah and his family went through a type of baptism. Okay, but he says, Peter does, 1 Peter 3.21, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. So stop there. Oftentimes, that's as far as the Roman Catholic will read. But notice if you keep reading, Peter is very clear. He says, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Does everyone see that? Now, notice right after baptism now saves you the phrase, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. Peter could not be any clearer that it's not the outward ritual act that does it, but what is it that actually saves us? He says, an appeal to God for a good conscience. So, okay, how do we have a clean conscience that's not guilty before God? In other words, our sins have been removed. Notice he says, here's the instrumental cause, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is an instance where you might say to yourself, well, wait a minute, why didn't Peter not just mention the resurrection, but Jesus' perfect life, his miracles, his substitutionary atonement, his death on the cross, etc., etc.? Because remember, the resurrection is a synecdoche, a part that refers to the whole. It's the capstone of all that he did. So if you drive into the parking lot, you've got your new car, and I say, hey, nice wheels... I'm really referring to the entirety of your vehicle. It's the wheel that symbolizes the whole. Are you with me? The resurrection in the same way is symbolizing the whole, all that Christ has done. So the way that you and I have a clear conscience then is through the work of Jesus Christ. That's what Peter is saying. And so it doesn't come through the outward act of baptism. That just symbolizes what God has done through Christ. So again, that passage does not in any way teach baptismal salvation or regeneration. We got one there, and I think we got one over here again. Um, yes, David. Uh, I don't know if the Lutherans or the denomination I grew up in are still pointing to this verse as a basis for uh, infant baptism, but uh, I know... I grew up in a pastor's home, okay, and uh, I mean, it was a good, solid uh, home, I mean, but I mean, it was just that this basis for the infant baptism was, I think, this this particular verse, and but I don't hold to that any anymore. Well said, David. I, I agree. And I, we, you and I were in the same boat. <laughs> um, I grew up in the same situation. But when I learned the scriptures, I learned, well, you know, there are some traditions that just don't line up with what the Bible teaches. And uh, so, amen. We're, we come from the same background there. Yes, Eric. 
Yeah, this is this whole discussion really, and using these two proof texts as the Catholics do. Yeah. it's just a great illustration of how you have to look at the full counsel of God, Amen. and and there's just such a lack of. And not that I'm an expert biblical scholar, but I'm getting better, and we we all hopefully are. Um, Amen. And so you look at the entire New Testament and even the Old. You, you take it comprehensively. Amen. And you cannot believe in the infant baptism. You, you know, it, what, what is the gospel? You know, the first thing Jesus said was repent and believe the gospel. Amen. He, didn't, he didn't somehow forget about right. baptism. Right. So, but people will pick out just what they, what they need, and that's not the right way to do things. Absolutely, Eric. And you bring up the good point that our task as Christians is to really understand the intent of the biblical author. Remember, they were the ones who were inspired by the Holy Spirit. So the author is inspired, not the reader. So I can't read into anything I want and say, well, God's going to bless it. I have to try to understand what Peter is saying. And so what we do is, as we become better readers of Scripture, like that phrase, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, why does Peter add that? Is he just, is he concerned about filthiness? Or no, he's obviously referring to the physical act done. It's, so baptism by the physical act isn't what saves but it's the appeal to God through a good con- or for a good conscience through the work of Jesus Christ, the resurrection. So yeah, um, as we become better readers, we realize, hey, some of these texts that I learned as a kid in my old denomination, they don't hold up under cl- closer scrutiny. So very well said. Yes, Peter. So again, ma- master of the obvious here, but the emphasis is on what God did for us, not what we do for God. Amen. Exactly right, Peter. That's right. Yep. Um, with that, let me show you another text that's used, and then we'll, we'll, we'll kind of move on here. I know we're getting short on time. But turn your Bibles to another one that will be used. And I just want you to see how these three are the primary texts that are often used to try to prove baptismal salvation. And this one is Galatians 3.27. Please turn your Bibles there, and I'll show you a very easy way to refute this claim. Again, you might be talking to a Roman Catholic who will pull up Galatians 3.27 and use it to try to prove baptismal regeneration. Galatians 3.27, here's where Paul says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And so what the Roman Catholic will do is they'll use that proof text to show the primacy of baptism. But what I want you to do is back up three verses to Galatians 3.24. Just look three verses earlier to what Paul said. Notice three, Galatians 3.24, Paul said, Therefore the law, that's the law of Moses, has become our tutor. By the way, that's the pedagogos. Has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. Now here's the purpose statement. So that we may be justified by faith. So notice in verse 24, three verses prior to verse 27, we're justified by faith. So therefore, all those who are justified by faith are to be what? They're to be baptized. And so that's how baptism then is a symbol that we have put on Christ, but it's not the instrumental cause that links us and justifies us with Christ. That's by faith alone. So again, don't take verse 27 out of order. We have to have verse 24 first. Yeah. I'm sorry, we got another comment here. Uh, Peter, hold on one second. We get Carly coming. Yeah. <laughs> so like they refer to tutor here in the scripture, couldn't 
Catholicism you were raised in or Lutheranism you were raised in act as a tutor? Um, no, not in this case. Not, not um, in this context. Bob and I actually did a lot of uh, critical issues commentary radio on this passage because we went through Galatians. That term, what's interesting, is anybody ever heard of pedagogy? Uh, the left loves using that term. They'll talk pedagogy, pedagogy, and they just love it. I don't know why that is. But what the pedagogos is, the tutor there in verse 24, it's literally the boy leader. And what wealthy families would do in antiquity is they would hire a servant to take care of the children prior to them advancing in age where they were old enough to take care of themselves. And so they were like, in a sense, a nanny. And one of the debates is in this text is the pedagogos used because it was, a lot of them were tough. They were kind of like drill sergeants. They weren't always a nanny like a woman. They were more like a drill sergeant in your face, making sure you brushed your teeth and did all the, your schoolwork, etc. They were tough. But the point, I think Bob did a really good job of explaining this to us. The point of the pedagogos isn't whether they were tough or not. The point of it is that they're only there for a time. Just as the law of Moses was only for a time, when the new covenant in Jesus Christ broke forth, you don't go back to what's been superseded. As you grow to adulthood, it would be like saying, well, you know, I need, all of you have your own homes, etc. Can you imagine going back to your nanny? Going back to Nana and, and checking in with her? No, you've, you've graduated from that. The law of Moses was until a time that the new covenant came. So there's no going back. We've progressed beyond that. That's the point of the pedagogos. Okay, and thanks, Bob, by the way, all the great research you did in that text on that. So um, anyway, anybody else have any questions on that? I know we only have four minutes left. But let's talk a little bit about what baptism does do because I don't want to leave just a negative uh, idea in your mind about baptism. One thing we have to know, baptism does not regenerate. It does not justify. It's by faith alone. The Roman Catholics don't have a leg to stand on. But as I say that, I don't want to poo-poo the significance of baptism. Baptism, even though it's distorted by Roman Catholics, is something that Christ ordained. And again, let me explain the significance of it. There's three things that baptism symbolizes. Number one, it does symbolize the removal of sin. It doesn't accomplish that, but it does symbolize that. Second, it symbolizes regeneration by water, that is, by the Spirit, which water symbolizes, that God does. Third, it does symbolize that you and I are dead to the old world and we're alive to the new. That's what Paul picks up on in Romans chapter 6. So those are the three symbols. But remember, all of those symbols are designed to point us to our identity in Jesus Christ. The most important issue with baptism isn't all of those symbols, but it's about identity. It's about who you're with. Now, let me try to illustrate this with answering the question, why was Jesus baptized? Did Jesus need the removal of sin? No. no. He was the sinless one. He certainly didn't need regeneration, but he was baptized because he had to identify with the people of God. We're going to be studying the Gospel of Matthew very soon. And I want you to remember that when Jesus was baptized, remember in Matthew chapter 3, right after that he goes into the wilderness. What happened to Israel after they were baptized through the Red Sea? 
they went into the wilderness for 40 years. So they're baptized through the Red Sea. They go into the wilderness and they falter and they stumble because of their unbelief and sin. Jesus is baptized. He goes into the wilderness for 40 days and he succeeds. Why? Because he's the faithful son that Israel never was. He's the faithful son that Adam never was. He's the faithful son that none of us ever could be. So when he's baptized, he's identifying and doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. That's what Jesus Christ did. He identifies with us. Just as if you were with Moses and baptized, you were identifying with Israel. Just as you were in Noah's family, you were identified with the righteous and you were brought through the floodwaters. When you and I are baptized, what we're saying is we're with Christ. We're dead to the old world and we're on the way to the promised land. That's what baptism is about. But dear ones, it does not accomplish justification. It is forever the picture of it. And because it is the picture of what God has done for us, notice we only do it once. We are commanded to be dedicated to studying the scriptures, to be about prayer, to do the Lord's Supper often, but you only do baptism once. Acts 2.42, it didn't say that the early church devoted themselves to baptism. Why? Because that would wreck the picture. The moment you trusted in Jesus Christ, you began the final exodus. You left Egypt. You're on the way to the promised land. And if someone says, why? Because I'm with Christ. That's what baptism is about. So let's bow our heads in prayer and thank God for justification by faith alone. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you alone save, that the instrumental cause of salvation is faith alone, which you bring about in your elect. We thank you for this truth. We do pray for Roman Catholics, friends, neighbors, family that don't know this great truth. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us opportunity to share the truth of the gospel in love with them so that they may hear the greatness of who Christ is and what he's done. That salvation is through faith alone in him alone. But I do also pray, Lord, that we never lose the significance of what our baptism symbolizes, that we're with you forevermore, that you'd enable us to persevere to that day that we go through the wilderness and we end up in the promised land. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you. Oh, you know what? I'm so sorry. I forgot. I was supposed to leave more time. This is your assignment. I'm so sorry. Um, We've got some time when you're milling about. Maybe you can write down your assignment. Um, But this is your assignment for Proverbs. That's what we're supposed to be studying. So today was a stopgap. But I'm glad we got to get into some of the material. Yeah, I'll leave that up for a while. So that way people can jot that down. But that's our next section in Proverbs. I know, you know what? I forgot to put the slide until later. But no, it's a very constructive criticism. Thank you. <laughs> very good. Yeah, thank you. Yes. Yeah.